Welcome to season two of Join the Dots. We've spent our careers giving advice on the environment and learned that choices are never straightforward, but that working through the complexity is rewarding. Here, in each episode, we meet someone new who deals with such complexity in a different way. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Our guest today is Jody Newcomb, joining us all the way from Castle, Maine, near Melbourne. Welcome, Jody. Thanks, AJ. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Pleasure to be here with you. I had the good fortune of working with you, Jody, back in early 2000s and have always been inspired by the way you bring science, economics, your artistic side together. And when I described you before, I used to use the word creative, but now I think more that actually people are creative in whatever they do. That, But what do you do these days, Jody? <laughs> well, I guess I probably wear three hats. The first is that I'm the climate change coordinator for the local government. And that's a part-time role at the moment, which means that I can inhabit two other roles. And one is continuing about a decade-long creative practice through an organization I created for bringing artists and scientists and all sorts of professionals together to look creatively at how we address climate change. And that organization is called Carbon Arts. And the third thing that I do is I'm setting up a local think tank for the regenerative economy with three other colleagues, and it's called the Castlemaine Institute. And that's in the startup phase. All of those three roles really merge together through the project that I'm leading with at council at the moment, which is our community's response to climate change. So we declared a climate emergency a couple of years ago as a council thanks to a massive campaign of the public. And we're at the moment really just going through the long process of co-design of that plan or that response with the community. And I bring to that the different hats that I wear as I do that work. We're going to unpick all of these things. Where to start with these three hats? I'd like to start with the word community. Can you tell us a little bit about where you live to start with, but also how you defined community. The reason I ask this, Jody, is that sometimes I come across this divide between the decision makers, the business, the experts who advise them all, and then these people who are the community, whose lives are massively affected by all those decisions, but not necessarily seen and heard when the decisions are made. What is the community? Moving to a smaller place from a big city like Melbourne and living in London before that actually brought into starker relief what a community is. Because if you live in a larger place, you have less of a sense of a community. So what does London think about water quality? And mm -hmm. a representative sample of London is not going to include people that you know. Whereas in a community this size, and our entire shire is 18,000 people, and the borough that I lived in in Melbourne was 80,000 people. And one of the things I love about living in Castlemaine is, and I recognize this very early on, is that you don't have to email people here. You just leave the house. <laughs> My goodness. You leave the house. <laughs> you just leave the house. I'll be sitting in a cafe having a coffee with someone about a project that I want to do. And I'll say, who are those two guys that have just arrived and are doing the renewable energy plan? And then I'll literally look across the room and there they are. So I walk over and I say, hey, I have this great idea. I really want to run a session at the local pub about sustainability and the renewable energy plan and et cetera. What about it? And it's so efficient. I think that 
community for me has started to feel much less than an abstract thing. And when you start to have those connections to place and you start seeing yourself as embedded within an environment, the community is no longer just people. It's the community of birds. It's the community of insects. From a policy perspective, working in local government, I think what's really fascinating at the moment is that we have a new Local Government Act, which requires that local governments do deliberative democracy. And it requires that we work with the community to create a vision and the council works towards that vision. Now, every council is totally on their own in terms of how they do that. But I've discovered from working in council, you get those members of the community who just always call you and they always have something to say about whether it's climate change or whatever your field is. And that thing of the squeaky wheel gets the attention. So the community from a local government perspective is often a real irritation. So I think there's a great opportunity now with a deliberative democracy to see the community as something much richer and to have citizens assemblies and all those amazing kind of different ways of governing is, yeah, super exciting. I think you're absolutely right in a very big, busy city community feeling is quite hard, but that's one of the positives that happened in the last year or so from not only from working from home because you're just around your neighborhood, but also because of the sort of emotional state that we've all been in. I've never said so many hellos, good mornings and smiles to my neighbors as I have done in the last year and a half. I think there are more and more these smaller neighborhood level assemblies and groupings are happening. I was reading one about the climate group in Lambeth in London, for example. You don't get more inner city or a mixed, varied background borough than Lambeth in London, probably. But they are also working together to create that vision. As you said, there is a sort of thread across your three hats, but also you're kind of inhabiting lots of different worlds. You're speaking to academics, you're speaking to politicians, and then you're going to and speaking about all that in the pub. Sometimes the languages spoken in those worlds are very different and loads of us struggle with communicating across them. Have you struggled or have you found it naturally that happened? What helps with that multilingual way of existence? Yeah, I think that is a very underestimated skill to be able to translate between disciplinary language we could not dumb it down. I think that's the wrong way of framing it. But if we're able to bring all of our language back to basics and actually say what we mean. And I think one of the really fascinating things is that sometimes when you do that, you end up in a situation of like the emperor's new clothes. You realize that actually you were using the language of your discipline to actually hide what you're actually doing. And to be completely frank with you, AJ, I found the language of environmental economics a little bit like that. I think the more we can get outside of our disciplinary knowledge and comfort zone and work with others, the more we'll be able to reach broader audiences and communicate that common aim, which I think we all share as humans. We all have the common aim of trying to survive on this planet. <laughs> There's a practical element to language. The frustration with not being able to communicate yourself does lead to changes the way that you conduct work as well. I felt that frustration. In fact, one reason that we're doing the podcast was we can't express ourselves enough anymore doing reports or just conversing within this decision-making world with the same structure meetings and where you stand, where everyone else stands. It was feeling more claustrophobic. I guess humility is needed in that the more you work in an area, 
the more you realize actually you have no idea what's happening you really have to work with others and as you say the more i work with others the more my respect for them grew the more my curiosity grew about the way they looked at things so i try and approach it now I actually don't have anything to say to you to the new clients you know i only have questions to ask that's wonderful, Ejek. And I think that's actually the regenerative paradigm as well. Tell me, what is regenerative? So regenerative development, it's been around, I think, as long as environmental economics has, but it's something that's probably just become more popular and mainstream recently. Not about problem solving. Problem solving is about looking into the past and regenerative development is about looking into the future. It's a lot about seeding a field of potential and asking what wants to emerge. Let's just take a random example, like Hall's Gap in the Grampians near here was a meeting point of tribes for countless generations. So if you recognize that that history has power, then you might think about what you do in that town differently because it's always been a meeting place of different tribes. So it's a lot about collaborating with the environment. What you might do in a town that's next to the sea might be completely different to what you might do in a mountain, even though you might call both things a climate change action plan. And recognizing that Enhancing your awareness of a place and your awareness of what wants to be, which might be, you know, a river that's dammed, wants to be undammed, and the salmon want to be able to jump up that river as they have also done for eons. Then you can start to work with the actors who have come to the table to help that emergence and that will unlock. They call it nodes of intervention. So where are the pressure points where you can apply your efforts and it will just release a whole incredible potential. But yeah, so you would come to a client and you'd ask questions. You'd ask lots of questions before you figure out actually why you're both there. In a previous episode for the podcast with Bridget Emmett from Wales that we were talking about food supply in the UK, and she made a point that really stayed with me for months now, is that she was saying some people think about jobs. We need to create jobs for this community. Other people say, oh, we need food for the country. And others say we need to sequester carbon, so we need to plant lots of trees. Or whereas she was saying what we need to do is more, what can we do with the land here? Mm. What can we do with the environment here? And who are we to do it with? And then from there, all these ideas could come through and address your issues rather than all different people approaching it in different ways. Growing up in this world at the moment, I think it's such an amazing time to be alive because mm. it feels like every single decade we lift a veil and things are changing so rapidly when, with regard to the environment. I guess since the 17th century has seen ourselves as separate to nature through the Christian paradigm. And it's very hard to undo it. And I think the fascinating thing these days is not so much what you can learn, but what you can unlearn. <laughs> oh, how can I change my language so that it, it doesn't have any mechanical words in it? You see if you can have a meeting without using the word leverage, for example, or, <laughs> or even the word effectiveness. There's a certain language that's very technical and very, very mechanical. And try to use words that are actually more ecological because we are part of nature and we are starting to see that we are not separate. We are part of it. And if we just take our ego out of it and start pretending that we have the answers or we know anything. But I think you need to take away that ego out of it, that history, as you very rightly put, that we are the top of the food chain. We manage everything below us and everything is there to serve us mentality. Yeah, but actually we're part of it and we don't really know. We build all these wonderful things and then there is a storm and everything is knocked down. <laughs> we're actually still quite powerless. 
And we need to realize that and see it as an enriching thing rather than as a kind of, well, we failed as humanity. No, that's as far as we can go, perhaps. But let me take a step back from these very almost sort of existential questions for the humanity. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey? Can we have a meeting without using the word journey? That's yeah, my challenge. Nice one, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your personal learning from traditional to, to today? So I studied chemical engineering and when I got to the economics, I thought it was quite amusing that these these models and equations were being used to describe society because it was very clear to me that they weren't just like the processes I had studied where you literally put ingredients into a machine and out comes something else increasingly I think my creative side came out and I moved away from the economics profession partly because I moved from a country the UK of enlightened people who were willing to be progressive and evolve disciplines but when I got to Australia it didn't really have that depth and that progressive nature and so I was disillusioned and I went into the creative sector as a way of saying let's look at this problem from another angle and I created a basically a 10-year portfolio of projects looking at how we do public art and how we do artistic investigation into things like behaviour change around energy efficiency or the management of rivers for river ecology. I guess your career journey then is a regenerative one as well. You study something, you find the boundaries of it, and you move on to something else to see if you can actually broaden those boundaries from a different angle. Can you tell us about how you use art through one of the projects? project we did on energy use was called Building Run, and it came out of a, an initiative I created called Sensing Sydney in partnership with the City of Sydney to collect lots of data around how the city was progressing towards its sustainability goals and to engage artists to visualise that data and help bring more public engagement into those areas. So the idea was that by providing a feedback loop, we could have greater engagement What I really liked about data visualization as an art form was its ability to give you that immediate feedback and that sense that you're interacting with the system. So we used that and we actually designed a whole public art program with a major developer in Australia to commission several artworks that took data either that was ambient, like air pollution, or data that came from buildings and could help drive ongoing behaviour change in buildings, like as a reward for tenants for good behaviour. One of the commissions that came out of Sensing Sydney, and it actually used video art as a way of visualising the energy performance in real time, using real-time data of five huge towers in the centre of Sydney. So each of the screens that we put up was at the end of a racetrack in this massive foyer in the Deutsche Bank building. Each of the screens was an avatar. So it was an actress who had been recorded by the video artist in different states of running, like mm. on a treadmill. So you could see how she was, you know, in the middle of the day when the buildings were being used a lot, she was running really mm. fast and wow. she had different outfits on for each of the buildings. So in the space of 15 minutes, you could see the performance of a building throughout the day and it went for a whole month. So it was a durational work. And the building managers actually came and checked out mm. how they were doing and they started having a competition with each other as to who could perform the best and who could win the race. Art is able to shock and delight but I think I'm also hearing that through that makes you think and question how we live and perhaps then some of it might lead to action as well. Yeah. And so with Building Run, we were trying to increase the awareness of people in buildings about how their buildings were being managed and who was doing that. And also understanding the rhythm of the city, the pulse of it through the change of the running. But 
if we were to do that at a tenancy level, you could actually start introducing behavior change programs and say, let's actually try to win this race. And what does that require? And so one of the parts of that project was to engage all of the sustainability managers within those office spaces in a conversation together. So it was a real spark for that connection. I think towards the beginning, you said you don't want to be dumbing down. Totally agree with you. It's more about you need to be making it interesting for people. Yeah. And understand the importance of what you want to communicate. And that takes us back to the community. If you're obviously living with them, if you're seeing them in the cafe, you get to understand them much better than this kind of faceless decision makers or faceless people. My partner Dale's a painter and he says, if you ask me to talk about my painting, you're kind of missing the point. That painting will say something because I'm doing it visually. As people who aren't in the art sector, we kind of look down on that somehow, like, oh, it's just a commodity, you're just buying something. But at the heart of it, I think there needs to be much greater respect for the way that different creative professions, including music and theatre, bring so much knowledge to any situation. Perhaps that's because we're missing that link between what we feel when we're engaging with art and what it makes us do later. It's not just there to relax me from my very busy life and work, but it actually it's making me think about stuff in a different way. And that thinking might lead to me doing different things. Perhaps it takes longer, but actually much more sustainable way. Mm. We have to use the word sustainable in this podcast at least once. And that takes me to your other hat about the coordination, because one of the things that I hear a lot about, and it happens in UK as well, or, you know, such and such council has declared a climate emergency, which is good. It responds to the conversation from their residents, but sometimes it doesn't actually then go anywhere else. And in fact, it's sometimes criticized, you know, it's the lip service to say this council has declared the climate emergency. What are they actually going to do about it? Do they even know what they mean by climate emergency? So since you are the climate change coordinator for the local authority, can you tell us a little bit about what it means and what does it change once a council declares a climate emergency? And this was exactly the question that we tried to put at the forefront of our own briefings of councillors in this decision was to say, you can just declare a climate emergency and change nothing, which means we can deliver this. Here are the climate change programs you've already committed to, and this is what will be delivered. If you actually commit funding, then we can do these things and we can do more. We tried to be really specific in that decision-making. I was very disappointed that after declaring climate emergency and after having presented in so much detail, the money thought we needed, and they didn't fund it. The one thing that keeps me still working in climate change and sustainability, because let's be honest, like hitting the green wall is a real thing. You know, people who are trying year after year to get through that policy or to work within a particular system or organisation burn out. It is very tough work because it is emotional, something you deeply care about. For some people, it's quite spiritual. I think being able to say, okay, I've been an economist for a few years. Now I'm going to work in the creative sector. And now I'm actually going to go and work in local government. Now I'm going to start a think tank. The freshness of having that new perspective and still having that network, still being able to go, do you know what? I actually think we might need an artist in this instance. <laughs> and I've brought that to the work. And we've put culture as at the heart of that. Realize that culture is not just our own culture, as in like the culture that created this problem in the first place, and that what we need is a culture of stewardship. And oh, who knows how to do a culture of environmental stewardship? 
traditional custodians of the land, I feel confident in leading with that, knowing that I've had all that other experience. And it feels profound and it actually resonates a lot with the community. So back full circle to the community. (laughs) I found it you're curious. But you're not just curious for curiosity's sake, but you want to put everything in your bag and take it to the new position. Now, I totally agree with what you say about environmental economics. But then it's the first time that kind of economics appeared in news bulletins was only a few months ago. And the reaction to it is like, oh, my God, do economists think like this? Mm. You know, We've spent decades thinking like this, thinking that actually we are quite mainstream within our small world. But when you start communicating it, people go, oh my God, this is such a radical idea. This is the you know end of capitalism. This is why we need, you need, we all need to work more with creative people because they're your yeah. communicators. If you had even just to invest in more marketing as a priority, as an avenue to actually getting more widespread adoption of the ideas, which, you know, if you go back to the ideas, what are the fundamental ideas of environmental economics? There's no money on a dead planet. So I started bringing theatre workshops to science conferences. Great. And they loved it. And there was a woman who did a role play where they played children in school by a motorway. And they were saying about how their school is by a motorway and they only get to go to nature once a year. Whereas, you know, there are other people's schools that are right by a forest. And she said she'd been working in this field for decades and it never clicked with her this sharply, the the social injustice and environmental quality, the links between that. She only realized it when she acted for one and a half minute scene Mm. as a kid who goes Mm. to an inner city school by a motorway and put herself in that position. And that's the power of theater. And that is also the power of embodiment, our head, heart and hands together. The art engages the emotions, and that's really important because we are a lot emotion in terms of our makeup and the way we experience the world. So it's a very powerful tool. The head, obviously, we use a lot. The hands is actually the doing. So that person you just described, they were in that role. They were physically embodying a role, and that that embodiment is so important. And it's the same with making something or just using your hand, even in drawing connections between things that you have already done in your head, you might learn something completely different. The more we are in silos, the less we're going to be able to understand each other and work together. So let me uh, ask you one final question then. What's one thing that works well for you that you think will also work for others in other walks of life who are not necessarily into environment? I'm going to get quite deep here. I think it is the one thing that would be common to all is to understand your unique gifts. But I do think listening is also just very important, our ability to listen without trying to think of what we would say next or what we think and taking the ego out and just listening. Mm. Thank you so much, Jodie, for adding the unique variety to my day today, but also my whole... My whole life since I got to know you. Very oh, much. AJ. Oh. <laughs> I feel so good now. I'm going to go drink some champagne. <laughs> oh, great. It's too early for me. It's only 10.30 just, in London. Just I can't some, drink champagne. Put some orange juice in it, darling. It's called a mimosa. <laughs> it's so, totally suitable for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you to the rest of the team, Neil McCune and Anna Gunn. 
You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>